the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to the Seth Liebson Show. You may have noticed that Seth Liebson is not here. I am Lewis Hallman, the Managing Director of Insight Analytics, filling in, uh, filling in for him today, uh, along with my father, Hugh Hallman. Say hello, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Thanks very much. Today we are talking about, well, the, uh, the news, specifically Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires, as we begin and continue our withdrawal, um, we are seeing scenes of heartbreak and anguish and carnage unfold in the streets of Kabul as the Taliban are taking over the country far more rapidly than our experts and military analysts seemed to have predicted. Where do we go from here? How did we get here? We have been locked in a forever war for 20 years. And as we are now seeing this, as we have been slapped awake from the twilight dream of that conflict, I think that now we have a time to seriously reevaluate where we are and what we've been doing over the past 20 years. So I want to spend the show today talking about why our efforts in Afghanistan failed, and what that says about American politics, American culture, and American policy going forward into the 21st century. So on Afghanistan, one of the, the, the most striking facets of the conflict to me is that the current population of Afghanistan is not the same people who were there 20 years ago. Afghanistan is fairly unique uh, geopolitically, and that its demography, the makeup of its people, its population, is almost Stone Age demography. It is pre-industrial. Children outnumber adults by a radical degree. Uh, currently, I believe approximately 55% of the population of Afghanistan was not born when the United States invaded 20 years ago. If you want to extend that analysis and think of how many were children or younger when the U.S. invaded, that number balloons up to about 80% of the population of Afghanistan. So the people that are there are not the people that we invaded. So now we're leaving. We're leaving because we entered into a campaign of nation building for the better part of two decades. We entered Afghanistan on a, retali a retaliatory mission. The idea was constrained. We would prevent Afghanistan from being used as a training base for uh, uh, al-Qaeda and uh, other terrorist operations in the region. And we would strike at those who um, attacked us on September 11th. After we got there, political procurement... Uh, and expanding enthusiasm and plain old doubling down 
caused us to expand the scope of our mission and our operations. We started to tell each other that we were on a crusade to expand democracy in the world, that it was our role as Americans to rebuild and redefine other societies and to bring them in line with our values. The 20 years that we've spent there have revealed how futile this exercise has been. Where do we go from here, though? What do we, what do we learn from this? Well, the thing that I've learned or that I've taken away from this is that Americans themselves are now profoundly more isolationist than we were. After the Soviet Union fell in the late 90s, we were really on a, a sort of another level. We had won the Cold War. We were at the end of history, and there were no enemies to fight at that point. And so we sort of left our, our values, our vision, our strategies, and we let them go on autopilot without questioning why they were there or what caused them to come about in the first place. And without reevaluating our strategic objectives, we sat and simmered and eventually were pulled into Afghanistan. That eventualness As, wasn't so obvious, Lewis. I think the eventualness, eventualness of that was that we had a horrific event occur on U.S. soil for the first time uh, really since uh, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, and Pearl Harbor wasn't really actually U.S. soil at the time. And so we had the uh, trauma of uh, an attack that was linked to Afghanistan and the idea that, I think you're right, it was constrained, that we have a limited role in Afghanistan to constrain it from allowing it to be used as a base. And do you think that was a bad decision? No, no, not at all. I, I think that the retaliatory impulse was useful and was necessary. And that if we don't, uh, if we don't uh, uh, strike back when attacked, that then we send precisely the wrong message to those that would do us harm. But I think now where we're left as we are pulling out from Afghanistan is not that, that we should have pulled out. I don't think that that's what we're arguing at this point. I think what we're arguing about is the manner in which we pulled out. And I'll disagree with you on that, but keep going. Okay. Um, because right now, uh, we were getting reports initially of American bases being abandoned, artillery being seized, uh, aircraft and Black Hawk helicopters being seized by the Taliban to give them orders of magnitudes of the kinds of, of power projection that, that they, they would never have dreamed of before. Um, but now what we're seeing as well with the the evaporating of the U.S. presence in the region and the fall of the Afghan uh, state as President Ghazi fled the country um, almost immediately is that this 300,000-man army that we trained and equipped to quote President Biden as well or better as many of our NATO allies is now gone. Its equipment stocks seized and plundered. And so what have we done, I ask, if not give the Taliban the most gracious and and wide-ranging check uh, of arms that uh, in history like really there's there's never been anything quite like this before to to fully 
build, train, and hand over an entire state military apparatus is kind of unthinkable. It, it really is. To one's enemies. Yeah, the, the scale is is unimaginable, not only just in terms of small arms. We're seeing pictures of, you know, belt-fed machine guns and assault rifles, stacks and stacks of them now being seized. Um, but what worries me more are some of the other items here. Uh, we're hearing analysts talk about uh, the aircraft and the helicopters and the like. It's not these issues that I'm, I'm terribly concerned about. The the maintenance and the operational it's weight bad of these is. things is, is very hard to sustain. The worst things for me are air defense items, stinger missiles, drones, light, portable, high-power, sophisticated weaponry that could theoretically move across borders easily. Or be used uh, when brought to the states? For Precisely, for terrorism or, or more likely to continental Europe. Um, getting these things across our ocean moat is rather difficult, but bringing them to London or Paris or other states is sadly much, much easier. So here we entered Afghanistan in 2001-ish uh, with the idea that we were going to prevent it from being the base for terrorism. And now 20 years later, almost to the day, thanks to President Biden's uh, intent to uh leave Afghanistan on September 11th, somehow feeling that that would be a good marker to demonstrate his prowess. To me, it demonstrates uh, that the cowards that attacked us on September 11th, 2001, uh, won. They succeeded because now they have recovered their uh, lands. But worse, as I think you've just described, Lewis, we have now inadvertently equipped them fully to be one of the most effective terrorist bands that the planet will have seen. Right. The U.S. military has equipped now people who control a country that we, uh, uh, until a few months ago, dominated and had under control. They at least had to skirmish and fight on the ground in Afghanistan. Now they've got all the equipment, the material left behind, and intentionally given to uh, people who are now going to be subjected to murder and mayhem uh, because they were at one time uh, allies and assisted the United States. That's exactly right. And the last piece I'd like to say on this before we come back over the break is that we actually, the Pentagon was paying the salaries of the Afghan army up to the point that they were supposed to withdraw. Is it any wonder that if we were paying the salaries of the soldiers and then left and stopped, that they would then not fight? If we were providing all of the support, what would keep, keep them functional after we've left? It's baffling to me. If you want to join the conversation, please call in at 602-508-0960. This is KKNT 960, The Patriot. Thanks very much. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. I am Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman, or actually led by Lewis Hallman for uh, today's shows. Uh, we're going to be here till 6 o'clock. We intend to continue talking about Afghanistan in this hour. We're going to transition in the next hour to how on earth we got here. And, of course, it is our stock and trade. Lewis and I will give you a COVID update beginning at 5 o'clock in the 5 o'clock hour. Uh, but uh, I have to raise something that uh, needs further note, and that is Lewis raised an issue that I'd never thought of and that only his uh, calculus mind in a uh, algebra world goes to think about the movement in time of what's happened in Afghanistan. And that was data about the changing demographic and the changing people on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, he noted uh, just before the break that uh, 
since we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years, 80 percent, essentially, of the people who uh, are now in Afghanistan were less than 10 years old at the time we invaded in uh, 20 in uh, 2001 or 2002. And as a result, only 20 percent of the population in existence today uh, from that time were uh, new in Afghanistan before the U.S. presence. And since the population was about 20 million people, that really means only 4 million people in Afghanistan today know in Afghanistan before the U.S. was ever there. The population is now 40 million people. That's 10% of the population. Only 10% of the population have an idea of what Afghanistan was like before the U.S. was there. Imagine what that means. But first... We do have some callers who uh, uh, have graciously uh, elected to be part of the conversation. Let's go to Smitty in Scottsdale talking about what was left behind. Smitty, you are on the air. Uh, Okay, everybody's talking about what was left behind at the airbase. And uh, I would argue that perhaps that's a pittance of what was left behind. You are correct, sir. No one is talking about the Afghan treasury. Now, if they didn't have weaponry before, they can go out to Iran and North Korea. They can buy nukes and whatever else they need with the treasury. I think Lewis makes the point even greater greater than that than what was uh, uh, left on the ground in the specific uh, locations that are getting some airtime, Lou. That's that's exactly right. So not only do you have the, the fiscal issue, which is a good point, um, we can talk more about how the Taliban uh, uh, sort of raises funds and finances its operations, although it's really nothing so much as a, a drug cartel in almost pseudo-nation state form at this point. The Taliban is very much heavily funded by uh, the cultivation of uh, opium poppies in that part of the world. Um, so, but not only have they, have they seized the Afghan government's assets, they have also then seized all of the equipment of the Afghan army, and if not all, at least a, a very, very large proportion of the, the total equipment. So again, we're talking about not only small arms and armored personnel carriers, we're talking about helicopter gunships, we're talking about drones, we're talking about uh, potentially um, some uh, air defense items, stinger missiles and the like. And that's the stuff that, again, is very, very concerning Um uh, particularly with regards to terrorism. We've got another ca- uh, caller from Phoenix. This is George, who wants to talk about issues with the mission. George, you are on the air. Good afternoon, guys. Um, yeah, I just, first of all, want to give both of you a, a huge shout-out for daring to defy the false narrative on COVID promulgated by our government agencies. And I want to encourage all the listeners to tune in every Tuesday afternoon when Seth has either one or the other or both of you on to talk about that. Getting on to Afghanistan, I'm sure a lot of people remember that initially the mission in Afghanistan was to get bin Laden, who was holed up in Tora Bora, either through incompetence or subterfuge or maybe in a combination of both, he escaped from Tora Bora. After that, our troops did soundly defeat the Taliban and took control of Afghanistan. And at that point in time, the Bush administration wisely left a relatively small force of troops in place just to keep a lid on things and actually dressed 
in uh, Afghan-type dress and encouraged to grow their beards so they would be accepted by the local population. Now, moving on to what you just said about the uh, 80% of the population of Afghanistan today is either people who were not born yet or are un- were under the age of 10, that can only be bode ill because they would almost universally view the United States as an occupying force and therefore be very much pro-Taliban. That's exactly and, right, George. That's a really great point and one I think that is not being discussed at all and, and as to why we failed here. Yeah, and so you can point to, as the old saying goes, uh, you know, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit uh, whose fault it is, and there's a lot of fingers pointing in various directions. Donald Trump wisely realized that this was a quagmire that was never going to be won and decided we were going to get out, which we should have done, frankly, almost 20 years ago. Unfortunately, because he's not there, the withdrawal was so bungled, it's an order of magnitude more humiliating than the um, withdrawal from Vietnam in 1975. As such, any potential adversary, whether it be the Chinese, Iran, or whoever, is going to look at us and think, these guys don't have the will to do anything, and more importantly, do anything right. That can only bode ill for Taiwan and others who this very moment are reevaluating how valuable their friendship with us is. Um, George, I, I want to pick a fight with you a little bit because I actually disagree in terms of needing to get out. And this is the premise I'm going to start arguing. The amount of money, the people, the deaths that uh, to U.S. personnel and Treasury we spent – during the last 20 years was significant, uh, $800 billion plus minus. Uh, But once the drawdown occurred and stability seemed to have been achieved, we have been running at uh, 3,500 to 4,500 troops on the ground. The expenditures of funds has been significant, but generally, as I think you noted, that the U.S. military took some tax to make the uh, personnel there on the ground safer as well as be somewhat more accepted. As a result, we kept this fight on the ground in Afghanistan. And that is an expense that is significant, but let's put it in contrast. Folks have talked about Afghanistan as being the longest war. In fact, the United States still has something on the order of 55,000 troops in Japan and 35,000 troops in Germany. How is it that, yes, they don't get attacked quite as often, but the reality is we have that kind of investment to assure the stability of that part of the world. Why is Afghanistan, with its surrounding neighbors, less important? I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. And we'll be back in just a moment. Take more calls. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show uh, this beautiful August day as we are talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I'm joined in studio by my father, Hugh Hallman, here at KKNT, The Patriot. Now, uh, you said something just before we went to break. Uh, you being uh, me, I trust. That Well, it, it, it really struck me asconce that, that we had had very few military deaths uh, in Afghanistan over the past year. Fair point. At least let and, me—the the argument I was making is merely that 
the uh, the losses of lives and material has been drawn down significantly in the last couple of years, and we had reached a level of sort of stability where we kept the fight in Afghanistan. And your point? So my, my point is that uh, one of the, the very strange things about Afghanistan and the larger war on terror generally was that we started to use a significantly higher proportion of contractors working alongside our military. If you look at the total casualties that that U.S. forces sustained in Afghanistan, roughly 60 percent of them are uh, military contractors. So what what we've effectively done here is— About 6,500 people, 4,000 or so are contractors. That's about—yes. 2,448 are military personnel. That's right. So— what we've done here is that we, we have sustained operations in Afghanistan and sort of enabled the, the corporate press to report back just a, an arbitrarily low death rate because they're reporting American military deaths. Contractors are typically reported and thought of very, very differently uh, amongst our population. And so one of the things that we have done that has allowed us to sustain this conflict for 20 years is that we have sort of artificially distance ourselves from the cost by not using sort of our soldiers, those who fight on our behalf as sort of as government agents, really, uh, 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 for our freedoms and liberties. By using contractors, we have obfuscated our involvement in Afghanistan and allowed us to institutionally involve ourselves in a way that, that isn't felt by the public at large. Fair enough. No, I think that's a good point. But I I don't want to lose the larger point, which was, uh, and I disagreed with President Trump on his determination that we withdraw from Afghanistan. Keeping the fight in Afghanistan has an expense to it. But when you contrast that with the amount of money and personnel we put in other places on the globe, Germany, 35,000 troops, Japan, 55,000 troops, in order to maintain our position in the world and assure peace and security around the globe, as you've noted in other shows, Lou. Fact is, we are the now policemen of the globe precisely because of the Bretton Woods uh, Treaty that we ultimately agreed with the rest of the world. We'll we'll patrol the world. We'll make the oceans safe for everybody. But uh, in this instance, the cost-benefit analysis suggests to me that the, uh, the fallout now from what has happened in the bad withdrawal. This is the second Saigon, or worse, the second Tehran. Now you've got the second coming of Jimmy Carter with a massively failed exit strategy. And perhaps uh, we don't have helicopters taking off from the U.S. Embassy like we did in Saigon, but it's awfully close. And there's more opportunity and need for that immediately. With all of that said, uh, I think we will regret having sacrificed... uh, $800 billion and the many, many thousands of lives that we did uh, in this effort to have exited not only the way we did, but that we exited at all. I want to talk to you more about this, certainly in in more sections as we we continue the conversation. But one of the things that that is very strange to me about this, or or at least about what you just said, is that um, you assume that, that because we're spending more uh, in Japan and in Germany, that then because we're spending less in Afghanistan, it's 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 worthwhile. What presumption do you have that the expenditures in, in Japan and Germany are at, are themselves at all worthwhile? 
So fair, if, if fair, we're critiquing fair Afghanistan, fair point, <laughs> right? So 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 just because we're doing it there, like doesn't necessarily mean that we are ought, we ought to maintain an international presence at all. So one of the things I hope that we'll we'll talk about as we get later, we're going to take some more calls as well, uh, particularly Robin. Surprise, we'll get to you after the break. But I want to talk with you more about whether we should be involved and to what degree we should be involved in the international scene going forward. So, Rob, we hope you'll hold until after the break. We apologize that we didn't quite get to you yet, but we will. Uh, I'm Hugh Holman. He's Lewis Holman. We are filling in for our good friend Seth Liebson, who has finally agreed to and is taking a little bit of a vacation uh, to recharge his batteries and uh, do some quiet reading so he can think of some new concepts and ideas to bring to us. Uh, on the air. Uh, it is a lovely day outside, but we are delighted that whether you're in your car, you're in your house, you're in your office, uh, wherever you may be, that you're listening to KKNT 960 The Patriot. Again, I'm Hugh Holman. He's Lewis Holman. And thanks to Seth Liebson for letting us fill in. We'll be right back after this break. Hello and welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Lewis Holman, guest hosting today with my father, Hugh Holman, as Seth is taking a well-deserved break. We are talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 602-508-0960. We are going to be talking with Rob from Surprise, who wants to uh, uh, discuss the tribalism in Afghanistan. Rob, you are on the air. Well, thank you. And, and by the way, I, I just enjoy uh, both uh, you guys, you and Lewis, uh, whenever you're on. Uh, when you talk about COVID, I think you guys are spot on the mark. And uh, thanks so much for hosting for Seth. Um, first of all, um, I'm retired Navy, uh, flew Tomcat. I was also, uh, and I'm almost ashamed to say this, I was a Foreign Service officer for five years from 2005 to 2010. My experience there uh, had to do uh, with uh, mostly visas. But I remember when I was in the Foreign Service, Condi Rice was the Secretary of State, and then Hillary Clinton was afterwards, I guess. Um, I remember that there was a big push for uh, encouraging Foreign Service officers to do a one-year unaccompanied tour in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, you know, the, the cart and the horse and the carrot and everything was, well, you can go wherever you want afterwards. But nobody there talked about, you know, why are we nation-building or pushing democracy in a culture that neither understands nations nor democracies? And then, of course, today we had that uh, State Department spokesman talking about inclusion in the new Taliban regime, and of course I had to laugh. But the, I guess the point is, um, when when I thought about uh, what's been going on, I, I thought about David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, you know, the analysis of our failures in Vietnam, where they got basically everything wrong, and it was all in D.C. You, you can't and, and this is a screw-up, not just by Joe Biden or by the Washington weenies, but also by the military decision-makers who either didn't have the guts or uh, the spine to start telling the truth about things. Because you can't make a national Afghan army when you're dealing with tribal people. Um, because and, and this goes notwithstanding the percentage of Afghans who were born in the past 20 years, because you know their exposure... Uh, and the likelihood that they're going to identify with a nation or a democracy versus a tribe, you know, it, it's sort of problematic. And their tribe but, at that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, again, the, the best and the brightest 
looked at Afghanistan and our involvement after the initial you know, combat, which the mission was accomplished, where we should have pulled out, when, when you have a, an Afghan army that's tribal, and that's all they know, that's all they've ever known, they've never been united, they've never been under one, you know, quote-unquote nation-state, and you can't even bring a democratic government or nation-build into a culture like that because, first of all, they're not a part of Western civilization. Um, second of all, they're not really a country, in, and they never have been in the Western sense, as we understand nation-states. Um, but instead, Afghanistan has just been a series of tribal enclaves. And so, you know, I compare this sort of 19th century Africa, which got carved up by the Europeans, uh, that didn't take into consideration tribalism. And I think... And the Middle East. Yeah, I I think I understand why things fell apart so quickly. Um, And it it didn't have to do just with Joe Biden's buffoonery. Um, It also had a lot to do with uh, the lack of preparedness that I think Donald Trump had some sort of an orderly process with certain milestones that needed to be met that, you know, the current regime blew off completely. But I think it all boils down to a basic non-understanding of, you know, third, fourth world nations who don't, they're not able to get, uh, get, I guess, in the, in the, the our sense, uh, what a democracy is, what a unified nation is. Um, and and it's just going to continue to be the same way because they don't know anything else. They don't want to know anything else. And I don't think anything's going to change, even when, you know, China comes in with a lot of incentives to get all their raw materials and everything. So Boy, did I say enough? No, but, I think, Rob, that's great stuff. So, Lewis, I think Lewis has a bunch of stuff to respond with. Uh, yeah, well, there was actually one one big question I had as you were, were making the comparison to Vietnam. Um that that conflict was very much uh, because, as you rightly pointed out, you know the the problem with Vietnam was very much in Washington. I see Vietnam now, looking back at it historically, um, as someone who's only ever looked at it historically, as having been a problem where we were led by experts badly. We were we were misled by our experts effectively. Those that we thought had our best interests at mind and could look at all of the issues weren't able to do it, you know, via McNamara being the the sort of stereotypical example in in Vietnam. But Mm -hmm. this is very similar in in my thinking to what we've been seeing with the COVID pandemic, with the vacillating, the back and forth nonsense, complete inconsistency on solution, no follow through at all. and also, uh, so, again, so COVID and Vietnam are better analogies. And in in the case of uh, Afghanistan, it's really Iran. Well, no. So I'm I'm wondering though, to what point do we does this does this show us that we have a systematic problem trusting our experts too much? Well, I, I'm gonna I want to Rob, if I may, pick up on first of all, thank you for your service, but including oh. as a foreign service officer. Those are where were you posted? Let me ask that. Where you where what well, was your my, initial postings? My, my first post, yeah, my first post was Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. <clears throat> you know, the most dangerous city in Mexico. So that was a good time. Uh, and then I went to Washington for a year to work on the uh, even more dangerous reconstruction. Yeah, reconstruction stabilization under the Secretary of State. Uh, and then my last post was in uh, Cape Town, South Africa, which was heaven. Uh, which I don't know that I could even go back now because it's now radically into, destabilizing as well, isn't it? I think very, very, very much so. 
And while I was there, they actually offered me a uh, unaccompanied tour in Iraq. I think it was, I can't remember, uh, Basra, I think. And I just said, you know, I don't really fit in here. Um, my mindset's totally different because of my military background. I'm a horrible yes man, which is why I could never be a flag officer. And I just <laughs> need to back out of this. I, I just need to back out of this. And, yeah, I could go on for years about the current flag situation, uh, which you guys probably have seen and know and understand, um, you know, where CRT is far more important than combat readiness, which just drives me nuts. Well, but, in, but in I the- think... I, I, I just want to pick up on in, in the case of the issue of Afghanistan being ready. I would disagree with you in one point that you said is specifically, and that is, would they, if they knew, choose a different course? And culture absolutely is crucial to determining whether or not a society is ready to launch into the kinds of efforts it takes to create a stable democracy and engage the way we do. Uh, it was thousands of years of Europeans clubbing one another to get to death out in uh, the fields of England, France, and other places before there was enough basis on which the Western society concept uh, was sufficiently well-seeded and developed. This is not something that's easy, and it requires a real basis in human investment with a long-term understanding of what you've got. When you're starving to death, when your neighbors could club you, when you're worried about whether your daughters uh, will be raped uh, or your family members killed, that's a very different kind of lifestyle. And what we enjoy is a bit of a luxury good. That doesn't exist. Those, those, those kinds of opportunities don't exist elsewhere. So I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're going to come back and continue to take calls. We'll be right back after this break. We want to thank one more time our friend Seth Liebson for allowing us to host the Seth Liebson Show and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As we coast through a glorious August afternoon, we are talking and have been talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan today, its consequences for our future, uh, why we have lost there, and what it means for America's presence abroad going forward. I want to thank our friend Seth Liebson uh, for letting us guest host today. It is, as always, an absolute delight and thrill. And I would like to invite everyone to join us in the next hour as we continue the conversation and start talking about uh, uh, whether we should uh, uh, continue the trend of retraction from the wider world, whether we should try to shape the destiny of the wider world, and what our role should be. As always, please join the conversation at KKNT 960thepatriot. Call us at 602-508-0960. And uh, um, please, uh, uh, any any thoughts, questions you have, we would be delighted to take them. Well, I want to pick a fight with Lewis, so make sure you all join us. And I need some folks on my side to talk about that the U.S. still has a responsibility to maintain peace and uh uh, quietude in the world because it is in our own best interests as the U.S. I, I don't know that we're going to fight that much over the uh, point. You, 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 you're not an internationalist. You like to withdraw the bridge. But the point being is the United States is uniquely positioned in the world. And frankly, look at our economy. Look at what we've done. I want to talk about how we got here. 
because I'm watching, as we'll discuss in the fifth, in the third hour at five o'clock, the COVID update. How the World Health Organization wants to complain that the U.S. should not be taking care of its own, that it needs to be sharing its resources because there are other people on the planet who have yet to get vaccinated and would like to be. That's the kind of stuff we want to be talking about in the next hour and in the uh, five o'clock hour. And we do hope you'll join us on KKNT 960 at 602-508-0960. We really want you to be part of this conversation. And sometimes it's hard for you to get a word in edgewise because, well, I'm pretty mouthy and Lewis has got a lot of opinions, too. But uh, we are interested to know. Should the U.S. still be engaged in the world? And if so, how should it do it? If not, how would you orchestrate the withdrawal? I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We look forward to your calls. We'll be chatting with you at the uh, next hour. And thank you for spending time with us. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.